Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What is the role of scientific prediction? Well, uh, there are different explanations for why societies uh, get into end times. And they propose um, often the opposite mechanisms uh, for uh, the uh, observed uh, data. So what we need to do, what is the scientific approach, is that we take those explanations, translate them into mathematical theories. That's very important because um, uh, human societies are dynamical systems with many interlinked parts. And understanding how um, different little uh, nudges or pushes uh, result in different outcomes requires uh, mathematical apparatus. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the podcast one of my favorite thinkers on societies coming apart. Yes, that's actually a field now, thanks to him. University of Connecticut professor and author of the new book, End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration, Peter Turchin. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Andrew. Peter, uh, I cited your book, Ages of Discord, in my last two books, uh, you have somehow gotten yourself uh, wrapped up in the dissolution, disintegration of societies, but you came to this from a completely different discipline. You came it from, uh, I want to say, as an uh, ecologist and studier of systems. Uh, can you talk about how you wound up in this field? Yes, I was trained as a theoretical biologist, and I worked on population cycles in insects, uh, uh, mice, uh, deer, and uh, lemmings. And uh, when I turned 40, uh, I essentially had a midlife crisis. Uh, but instead of uh, divorcing my wife, I divorced uh, my uh, science and married a new one. Essentially, um, I, I wanted to, to see, I wanted to um, encounter some challenges. And uh, studying history from the point of view of complexity science sounded like a challenge enough for me. And that's uh, what I've been doing for the past 25 years. And so you've helped to start a new field uh, that's called cleodynamics. Uh, can you describe what cleodynamics is? Yes, essentially, when I started um, working uh, in, uh, uh, became interested in history, I realized that history was the last subject 
that has not yet been mathematized. Other social sciences, especially economics, but also political science, sociology, they had mathematical models and they were testing those models with data, but in history this was not done in a systematic manner. So I and my colleagues came up with this name, Clio Dynamics. Clio is the muse of history, of course, and dynamics is the uh, science of change. And what is history? History is about how things change in time. So dynamics, uh, the dynamical approaches are natural uh, for applying to uh, history. And by the way, I am um, not only studying why societies break down, in fact, I study both. Uh, how come uh, we live in large-scale, complex societies? Almost 100% of people today lives in such uh, uh, societies are organized as states. But these societies are only 5,000 years old. For 95% of our evolutionary history, humans lived in small-scale, simple societies, and then suddenly there was this uh, incredible evolution. So that is uh, one of the two big questions. And the second question, of course, is why do such societies periodically enter into end times? periods of social uh, dysfunction, political disintegration, sometimes leading to pretty dire outcomes. It's true, I misspoke, Peter, because you talk about how there are extended periods of integration followed by extended periods of disintegration. So it's not like you just study them coming apart, you study them uh, coming together. Um, and you do have some positive recommendations as to how you can better integrate society yeah, and end and times. End times are also times of new beginnings. And that's what you... End that's times what are I'm, also times of new beginnings. Amen. Yeah. I'm all about that. Exactly. <laughs> For sure. It's like we might as well start something uh, positive if you, kinda, if you can sense that things are not trending in a good direction. So your work first hit my radar in part because you made what seemed like a bold prediction about 10 years ago where people asked you... Uh, what you saw coming down the pike, and you saw a very, very rough political time. Now, this is back before Trump, before a lot of things. Um, so what were the variables that made you think that we were in for this uh, rough period politically? But let me first step back and, and explain why I made this prediction. This was not a prophecy. It was a scientific prediction. What is the role of scientific prediction? Well, uh, there are different explanations for why societies uh, get into end times. And they propose um, often the opposite mechanisms uh, for uh, the uh, observed uh, data. So what we need to do, what is the scientific approach, is that we take those explanations, translate them into mathematical theories. That's very important because um, uh, human societies are dynamical systems with many interlinked parts. And understanding how um, different little uh, nudges or pushes uh, result in different outcomes requires uh, mathematical apparatus. All right, so that's the first step, to translate um, the different theories into predictions, and then we need massive data to test those uh, predictions. Uh, my colleagues and I, we have been building massive databases to do this, uh, and we had used a method we call retrodiction. Essentially, this is predicting what happened in the past. This is a true scientific prediction because you don't know until you actually look 
what happened to a particular society. And so that is a uh, severe test of theories. But at the same time, when I saw what uh, trends were developing in the United States, this was around 2008 or so, I actually, tr truthfully, I was shocked uh, because uh, it suddenly dawned on me that the uh, United States stepped on this path to uh, political uh, disintegration, fragmentation already by uh, 1980s, essentially. And therefore, I thought that this uh, offers us uh, uh, in, in my model that I ran forward suggested that it would be around 2020, early 2020s, when things, a variety of trends would come to a head, and that would be the most likely time for some kind of a social rupture to happen. And so I used this um, as a way to test theory and see whether it would be true. And alternative theories, by the way, you always, uh, always test predictions against alternative theories. Alternative theories were saying that actually things were getting better. You know, for example, uh, Steven uh, Pinker, you know, uh, Max Roser, and they all have been uh, pointing to the trends that uh, have been getting better and better. But um, uh, my theory said that there is there is going to be trend reversal, all right? And so that's uh, why um, this is um, a good example of scientific prediction, because we have different theories predicting different things. And then we waited 10 years, and unfortunately, we saw what we saw. Well, the, the, the model uh, took in a bunch of data points, and the data points struck me as fascinating. Um, where your model included things like average income um, growth or lack of growth, but also things like average height, uh, visits to national monuments, trust of public institutions, uh, elite overproduction. Um, you had a bunch of inputs that I had not considered before, though when I thought about them, they made sense to me. Uh, I thought average height was incredible. Life expectancy uh, was another. And when I was running for president, I would say to folks, look, life expectancy has gone down for the last three years. I mean, that's pretty basic. That's fundamental. You know, we're not living as long. Um, and so you're seeing these gains and these riches, but they're not being enjoyed by the average American. And if anything, the average American in some quarters is more likely to drink themselves to death or die of a drug overdose uh, or have other problems. And they certainly didn't feel included in any good things that were happening uh, somewhere else. Um, so can you talk about what data points went into the model and how you determined which ones were relevant? Yes, the ideas about what data to look at came from historical analysis. We, at this point, uh, when I wrote the book, uh, we had about 100 societies, past societies, sliding into crisis and then emerging from it. Now we are approaching 200 uh, of our sample size. And so what we see is the common theme on the road to crisis is elite overproduction. All right, so that's even more important than, uh, than what we call popular immiseration that can be measured with things like life expectancy and things like that. So perhaps uh, it's a, this is a good uh, time for me to explain what I mean by elite overproduction. Yeah, yeah, please. It's an important idea in your book. Um, right. So let's break it down first. Like, what the heck do you mean by elite? Exactly. Who are the elites? Um, simply put, um, it's a neutral thing. It's not good people, bad people. It's simply a small proportion of the population that concentrates social power in their 
hands. So th think about the proverbial 1% in America, although it's a, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but also, you know, um, Mandarin class in Imperial China, or if you go back into the past, military nobility in England, France. So these are people with power. And the next question you want to ask about elite is the dynamics of it. How are they reproduced and recruited? That's the key question. There's always more people who want to be in to acquire elite positions, the positions of power. So we call such uh, elite wannabes elite aspirants. All right, and that's uh, normal, and some competition is good. However, sometimes in societies, um, the number of elite aspirants begins to grow rapidly and completely overwhelms the number of power positions. We saw this happen in 2016 when there were 17 Republican candidates in the presidential primaries. And um, uh, they, uh, one uh, individual started breaking rules and it was followed by others and very soon things uh, degenerated uh, into something that nobody expected. But that's a normal outcome. We see this in medieval uh, societies, we see this uh, in periods preceding such, um, you know, b uh, breakdowns like French and Russian revolutions. American Civil War is another example. In all the run-ups to this huge crisis, there was a very uh, severe problem of elite overproduction. And that is uh, what led to the breakdown of social norms, and eventually uh, it, it led to bloodshed. 600,000 people killed in the American Civil War, for example. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device, you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. Yeah, one of the more foreboding predictions is that, according to your model, there's a diminution in the number of 
uh, elites. <laughs> so you look at that and be like, well, how do you shrink that number? So let me dig in a second. When you say um, that uh, the definition of elite uh, certainly includes money, um, you describe America as a plutocracy, uh, which I find pretty inarguable and <laughs> don't find problematic. Um, but when you talk about the elite, you're not solely talking about people with uh, big bank accounts. Uh, there are other forms of power. Exactly. There are, there are really four forms of social power. Um, first of all is coercion or military power. Then it's economic elites, money, wealth. Uh, then we have more subtle uh, form of power, which is administrative or political power. And finally, the softest power is ideological power, which can be very powerful too. And what happens is that different societies tend to specialize in different types of elites. right? So, for example, medieval societies, they were... They were ruled by militocracies, essentially knights, right? But uh, our democratic societies are typically ruled by a coalition between economic and administrative or political elites. But the relative power changes between those two um, um, members of the coalition. In the United States, uh, United States is actually quite unusual for OECD countries because of such dominance by the economic elites. So we're thinking about people with wealth, not just the 1%, but also uh, one uh, tenth of 1% or even 1% uh, 1 of 1%. So these are the people who concentrate huge amount of wealth, and wealth is translated into power. Yeah, so uh, again, your four forms of power are physical, which you hope is not as much of a factor in the U.S. because the state has something of a quasi-monopoly on uh, coercive uh, armed might. Um, then you have economic, which I think people understand. And then you have bureaucratic, which is who's actually running various institutions and mechanisms. And then the fourth is ideological or soft power, which you incl uh, say includes having lots of social media followers. Uh, you know, that, that would fall into... Um, the, the soft power category, which I agree can be very important. More traditional, think about religious uh, leaders. Uh, in fact, uh, there is one country, Iran, uh, where the uh, ideological uh, elites are dominant, all right? Uh, but uh, also it's uh, people who write for New York, New York Times columns uh, and the people who have huge following uh, on uh, on their you know podcasts or uh, uh, you know blogs and so, things like that. So by these definitions, Peter, uh, would you consider yourself an elite? I um, I am uh, essentially a ten percenter, right? So I, these are def uh, de uh, described as sort of lower rank elites. So we we have power in the sense that um, we can uh, we have power over our own lives, all right? So I, for example, don't have to do, I don't have to move to a place where I don't want to move. I don't, take, I don't need to take a job that I don't like and things like that. But I don't have a lot of power over other people. And of course, you have to realize that uh, there is no sharp boundary. It's, well, in medieval societies, there was a sharp boundary. You, you, you either had, you were noble, had a patent and so on, or you were a peasant and so on. But in our societies, the boundary is much softer. And so the power gr uh, grades, uh, the more wealth you have and the higher you are in the administrative um, hierarchy, the more power you have. There is no sharp 
boundary. You know what's what's funny, Peter, is I, I was reflecting on this a little bit, and one of the problems, which I guess gets us into elite overproduction, is I know a lot of people who would technically be considered elite under your definition who don't feel themselves to be elite. <laughs> it's kind of one of the problems, isn't it? Well, we have this mytho- mythology in, in the United States that uh, we, we live in a classless society, and uh, therefore, you know, people don't want to admit that they have... Um, huge amounts of power, but um, I'm a scientist. Uh, we, I write in the book that we want to stay away from ideologies and we want to study how society works in the most objective and even-handed manner. And the truth is, if you look at the United States, you certainly see that the proverbial 1% is a real thing. Not everybody of the, of the top 1% in wealth exercises their power. They have that power, but they don't exercise it, perhaps because they just amuse themselves flying to reach to posh resorts, you know, and things like that. But they do have that power if they wish to exercise it, whereas I don't. I don't have... Uh, enough wealth to buy senators, you know, to uh, influence political process uh, and things like that. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, It is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So, Peter, when I see elite overproduction, what comes to mind for me is you have a lot of people getting uh, college degrees and advanced degrees, and then not enough spots for them. Uh, whatever the heck that means. Um, And there are a couple of examples that I've spoken on before. For example, the number of tenure-track academic positions is at best staying the same, but you keep producing a gajillion new uh, PhDs every year, and so it's like they're not going to be able to become professors in the way that you'd you'd imagine. Um, So that's an, an evident one. There are less evident ones where you are producing tons of college graduates who may or may not have the kind of secure livelihoods uh, that, that they might have expected. Is that what you mean uh, by elite overproduction primarily is just we're producing tons more people with various credentials who then get frustrated and pissed off? 
partly what, what you have, you're describing is people, uh, in fact, let's step, st let's step back and talk about uh, immiseration, because this is going to be uh, critical in order for me to uh, explain, um, uh, you know, to answer your question. So one of the problems you note is that of the wealth that's been produced in the U.S. over the last several decades, it seems to have collected in the hands of the top uh, tenth of one percent, top one percent, and to a lesser extent, the top ten percent. And uh, the average American has seen uh, barely anything um, uh, over that period. Um, and by the way, the the cost of education, or the cost of healthcare, or cost of housing keep going up and up, uh, and in some cases are totally unattainable for the average American in a way that they would have been attainable uh, a couple of generations ago because, you know, cost of public education, maybe you had the GI Bill, stuff was pretty accessible, and now it's not. Um, and now, immiseration. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Go yes. ahead. So, for example, a um, household of uh, in the working class, so people without college degrees, if they want, uh, how, how many years they need to work? to pay college, average college, for their daughter or son. Well, it used to be uh, about a year or so. Now it's uh, nearly four years. So you can see that uh, this is uh, huge. Uh, the um, uh, measure of inflation doesn't really capture uh, important things like education, medical care, um, housing. So those are important aspects of the uh, of middle class life, but okay. So uh, the the question uh, is um, uh, for, first of all, why does uh, elite overproduction develop in societies? All right, and so here, uh, what we observe in one past society after another is that, as we were talking about, they they have they tend to go through about a century-long plus-minus periods of integrative periods when internal order and peace and things are working pretty well. What happens typically is that uh, the ruling uh, class gets used to these conditions and then they become tempted to reconfigure economy in ways that would benefit them rather than the rest of the population. And why? Well, just because they can. It's the iron law of oligarchy. And this is what happened in the United States in the late 1970s. We've all seen this graph where the productivity of American workers keeps going up and up. And then in the late 1970s, prior to that, the wages have been going up. And then, boom, there is a flat or stagnating or even declining. And so this is what, and so, uh, this is what has driven uh, immiseration, which is a real thing because you, you mentioned um, the overdoses and alcoholism. Well, the technical name for it is the deaths of despair. It also includes suicides, and also uh, people become more likely to have accident, fatal accidents. That's because they don't care about life. They're feeling that they are losing ground so much that, uh, that they uh, do all those things. So that's a miseration. And when I started giving talks um, about this, I was saying that, of course, we live in post-Malthusian times, and therefore I would not expect to see the typical um, uh, phenomenon that we see in previous uh, end times, which is the decline in life expectancy. And I was wrong, uh, because, as you said, around 2017, we, we saw the first decline. And now it's just, uh, we, are, we have lost like more than 20 years of progress 
uh, in life expectancy in America. So this is a real thing. All right, but then uh, w what happens to all that extra wealth that workers are generating? That's, that drives the, uh, what I call the wealth pump. It's the perverse wealth pump that transfers uh, riches from the poor to the rich, essentially. And so it is quite remarkable that over this 40-year period of time, the number of uh, uber-rich, like people who have $10 million or more uh, of wealth, it has exploded, it has grown tenfold. I mean, this is staggering. The population has grown 40%. The number of um, of decamillionaires grew uh, tenfold. So, so th that is actually one of two important pipelines that drive elite overproduction. So we are, we are actually going to circle back to the question you asked. So first of all, um, because um, in the United States the uh, elites, uh, the political, if you want to become a senator or even president. Right, there are two routes. First of all, you need to have a lot of wealth. All right, second one, we'll talk about that later, you need certain educational credentials. All right, the wealth um, route is essentially some proportion of those, uh, uh, of those uh, very rich class, they want um, uh, to translate their wealth into political office. So it's not just Donald Trump, it's also Michael Bloomberg. Also think about uh, uh, unsuccessful candidates like Steve Forbes. I don't know how many people remember his uh, bid for presidency. So, and so that is uh, one uh, pipeline that drives overproduction of elite aspirants for political positions in this case. The second pipeline is um, uh, all, even more important numerically. You, how, if, you want, if you don't have wealth, um, how, do you want, how do you get into, um, um, into political office? Well, the best route is, uh, is a law degree. And so we've been uh, producing law degrees, um, and those uh, individuals holding law degrees compete in uh, for uh, the positions. All right, but the third and very subtle um, result of the wealth pump is that because of the immiseration of the majority of the population, that inc increases the desire of more ambitious individuals to leave it and, and at least get into 10%. So these are the three thing that, things that they're all uh, rooted in the wealth pump. So that's, the, that's sort of uh, at the very basic level, what's uh, fundamental level, what's driving things. Yeah, most Americans can sense some of what you're talking about, certainly in terms of uh, stable life getting harder and harder to come by. I mean, there are stats on Americans choosing not to have kids because they may or may not be able to support them in that way. So you have a very compelling uh, picture of what comes next. Um, there's something called the political stress index that uses some of these variables and says that we're now at a higher level of political stress than at any time since uh, the first civil war, or the only civil war. We hope it's the only civil war. Uh, and in your book, End Times, uh, you talk about what you think is coming now. Uh, according to the data and the model. So if you had to describe to someone what you think is coming next, what what do the next number of years hold in store? 
first of all, I want to make um, a comment that getting into crisis, it's uh, like a ball rolling uh, down a narrow valley. So there's no really no place to go, which is why the, since uh, which is why I was fairly confident about making prediction back in 2010. But once you get to the crisis, um, uh, you are on the cusp and all kinds of uh, avenues open. That's, by the way, why we need so such a massive number of historical case studies is because there is so much variability uh, in how past societies have uh, exited from crisis. We need to understand why some of them end up in co complete collapse. You know, most of the outcomes are fairly dire, uh, quite bloody, but. The question becomes then, um, how do we uh, move our society in a more favorable direction? So here, uh, we, we really don't care about uh, prediction that much, right? Uh, what we care about is we want to understand what we need to do uh, to avoid uh, the really bad outcomes. And this is where the science uh, of history, cleodynamics, can be very useful. It's much more useful in this cusp. Uh, predicting the future is, um, is not that useful, but predicting, uh, trying to figure out uh, what we need to do is, uh, is the useful thing. Well, Peter, there's one thing in your book, and you just mentioned it, where you said, look, uh, when you get into this crisis mode, it takes years and years and years. And so one of the things you said in your book was like, according to the model, even if you did do some good things on the policy side at this point, you're still going to hit the rocks because the, the, the boulder has been rolling downhill for so long. Um, is, is that accurate? Yeah. It strikes me uh, as accurate, by the way. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know like, like, uh, we're at a point now where uh, I, I feel like um, the conflict is rising and it's beyond... Um, now, I'm all for various positive policies. I mean, you know, I've dedicated um, a fair share of my career to trying to make some of these changes um, and my personal life. But uh, but the I, I thought that uh, we're kind of in the throes of history and the the negative forces have been building for quite some time. Yeah, exactly. It's The social system has quite a lot of inertia. So now that we are in a crisis... What we, we can do is uh, ne negotiate or navigate a way out that is going to be less bloody than uh, what's uh, actually possible to happen. Many people uh, look at uh, the summer of 2020, well, including January 2021, and think that, okay, this was a spike, now we are past the worst. But what our um, historical analysis shows is that typically these periods uh, run of uh, civil uh, disturbance and high political violence, they typically run uh, 10 to 20 years, right? Uh, sometimes, very few examples shorter, sometimes if you have complete collapse, then essentially it's until something new comes around, all right? But um, it takes time for uh, these things to uh, work uh, their way uh, through the system. All right. And uh, so the decisions that uh, we collectively, and especially our political leaders, will be making in the next uh, few years are, go are going to have an effect. Right. Uh, we are still going to be in crisis. But uh, the, first of all, that will determine uh, how we exit this crisis. But also, more importantly, uh, we need to, uh, we have um, there would be another crisis coming uh, along uh, if we don't 
uh, reconfigure our social system back to where it is much more sustainable. So a turbulent 10 to 20 years makes sense to me intuitively, if that's the historical pattern. Um, I, I am now trying to put forward a more positive brand of politics uh, that gets beyond the two-party back and forth that I think is going to be kind of the flashpoint for a lot of this turbulence. Uh, you know, it's going to be animating um, the uh, hostility in various ways. Um, now, there are a bunch of common sense things I think uh, you'd want us to be doing. Um, and and the, the obvious thing is, hey, if you've got this, this uh, aggregation of wealth and resources in the hands of uh, relative sliver of the population, maybe you should spread that out some. You know, maybe there are things you can do that uh, spread the general prosperity. And you do have uh, historical examples and international examples of countries that came together and said, you know what, we're going to actually try and spread the benefits. Um, heck, even the U.S. in an earlier time period uh, resembled that. And so if you had to just make a you know, couple of policy recommendations that you think, hey, either before, during, or after uh, the, this uh, turbulent period, like this is what's going to bring us back together, uh, like what does that list look like? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make specific policy recommendations. Let me explain. We do have uh, several positive examples, and one of them you mentioned, it's uh, United States uh, during the Progressive and then New Deal era. It turns out, if you look at the data, that 1920 or so, there was a huge peak, plus minus several years, a huge peak of instability in the United States, which was uh, quite similar to 1850s. But this time around, the elites managed to avoid another civil war. And what they did, they essentially shut down the wealth pump that was driving the, pro uh, the problems uh, during the 19th century. Ni uh, 1850s and uh, 19th century was very similar to what we saw um, in the last uh, two or three decades. Even there was a Gilded Age, you know, we are now in the second Gilded Age, and... Uh, you know, things like that. And there are other examples like the Chartist period in uh, uh, Great Britain, like mid-19th century, and so on and so forth. So, um, but, we, but we don't just want to take those examples and follow them. We don't want to do exactly the same that the New Deal did. What they did, well, first of all, they gave power to workers to, to uh, organize and uh, negotiate. They uh, imposed minimum wage which kept, and, and it kept increasing it, and also they taxed the hell out of uh, people with high incomes. So we don't have to do exactly the same thing. What we need to do, we need to shut down this wealth pump. So we need to get uh, worker wages back on track uh, together with the general economy, all right? But how we do it, uh, redistribution is certainly one uh, way, but also uh, just simply increasing the minimum wage. It is mind-boggling to me that we have a democratic uh, president in power and uh, the minimum wage is still the same pitiful 7.25 cents. And it's in real terms, it keeps decreasing, all right? So there are some obvious things, but the specific, um, the specific mixture of what we need to do, this is the job for you guys. Uh, we, uh, a job for us. Yes. Challenge accepted, Peter. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'd say some of the obvious things would be um, trying to increase our life expectancy, because if a negative life expectancy is correlated to, <laughs> to the, like the, this, 
uh, crisis, then maybe we should try and lengthen people's lives. Pretty straightforward. Who could be against that? Um, maybe try and make it so that our average height uh, stays the same or goes up. I mean, I, I thought average height was hysterical. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it. Like if you have a, yeah. um, an unhappy uh, population that isn't getting its basic needs met, then uh, maybe they're not as tall or strong or healthy. I will also say I'm a parent. I have two boys, and I'm constantly telling them, like, eat, eat, eat. Like, you know, you've only got one shot to grow. <laughs> so, so I get it on that level. But I, I'd be trying to take shots at uh, these variables that you describe. Uh, public trust, you know, that's a negative variable that, that's in your model. So, like, how can we get people to trust institutions again? That's going to be a lot. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that we should do. Three quarters of Americans wish they started investing earlier, and over two-thirds of Gen Zers feel the same way. You know why it's tough? It's because it's tricky. It's daunting. It's intimidating. You know who has started an app to solve that are the founders of Bloom. Bloom app is the award-winning financial services app. It's made by young people for young people. I've met the founders. They are great guys who want to make you or the people in your life who are young and just starting out financially literate. Check it out at bloomapp.com, and there's a special offer for listeners to this podcast. $15 in free stock and one-month subscription for free. Go to bloomapp.com slash yang to sign up today, bloomapp.com slash yang. Why stay in the dark in terms of financial literacy? Let's get educated, people. bloomapp.com slash yang. I'm curious, Peter, um, how has the response been to your work? Because you are one of the real handful of people doing this work. There was a period X years ago where if you were to mention something like, oh, we might get embroiled in like a, another civil war, that was completely off the table in certain quarters. Certain quarters would be like, that's nuts. You're nuts. Um, and to the extent that people were saying that it was people who were, let's say, um, kind of ultra conservatives maybe or like you know separatist all right types but now um folks all over the ideological spectrum are looking at it and saying wow that's a real possibility like uh, what uh has has your experience been over the last really number of years that you've been making this case well uh, yes exactly and, uh, initially there's quite a lot of disbelief hell i um, it's hard for me to imagine that you would have something like American Civil War in this country now as a human being, right? But uh, as a scientist, uh, I know that in previous, previous pre-crisis periods, people also did not believe that they were going to get into, you know, French nobles in 1780s. Had no idea that they would be put under the guillotine, you know, and so on and so forth. Americans in 1850s did not uh, think that there would be a uh, bloody, such a bloody civil war. But it happened anyway. Just because we cannot imagine it, it does not mean it can't happen. And we, um, humans have been becoming more civilized in a sense, all right? We care more about uh, inflicting harm and killing other people. But that uh, may not be yet enough because if you look at it, there is a number of very modern societies. Think in the UK in the 1970s, Northern Ireland, who would have thought that this uh, 
democratic and uh, intensely civilized society would uh, get into a, you know into a civil war essentially all right so um, we need to be very serious about uh, about this possibility and if we are paradoxically then we can um, uh, we have a higher chance of avoiding it because that's the other thing in the successful cases um, uh, that did not lead to civil war or revolution. What happened was the elites became very uh, frightened, essentially, and they thought that a revolution was imminent. And that was a huge um, force that uh, pushed them to, to uh, adopt the necessary things. I don't know, when you, you are talking to other uh, uh, politicians and people like that, do you see that um, there is this feeling uh, that we've got to do something. Um, is that getting uh, taking hold? Or let me put it this way. I, I, yesterday I checked, I went and looked at your party platform, and you are, I think, very rightly talking about how you're not left or right. All right? And that's, by the way, that's how typically societies exit this, um, this uh, crisis, because they pull together, they uh, bury their the hatchet and between the different parties and uh, and uh, they essentially forge uh, some kind of a cooperation all right but in order to do that uh, there has to be enough understanding that we are in the same boat rather than it's the other side of the aisle that's the evil people we have to destroy them and back and forth so uh, what what's your feeling about where we are in this process Oh, thank you, Peter. Uh, this is my mission. Um, and in some ways, your work is heartening, uh, though who wants to go through 10 to 20 years of bad times before everyone gets exhausted and then decides to, to come together? Um, one of the major problems right now is that if you talk to someone in one party or another, they do tend to see it in terms of partisan conflict. Uh, and it's, oh, I got to fend off the other side. Um, and that's more important than uh, addressing some of these root problems. Uh, I, I think that we can hopefully, with the forward party, provide um, this coalition building uh, and get beyond the, the back and forth uh, and then address some of the root causes, uh, the immiseration. Uh, and uh, this is, by the way, I mean, why I ran for president in the last cycle. Um, and I had a vision that, hey, you know, we could get in front of this thing. Uh, and start trying to put out the fires. I still want to try and put out the fires. It's just now I will be honest with you. Um, I, I, I do feel like uh, things might get worse before they get better. <laughs> That's my feeling too, by the way. So the, the question is, um, is what the time frame is on when we can start doing the positives. Um, like what the vision you present, um, I, like I, I can imagine growing conflict and then also growing interest. And this is something that you say in the book, which interested me a lot, was you said, look, uh, there are actually going to be a lot of people that get pushed into um, the can't we build a coalition camp because they're going to be turned off and disgusted by the conflict. Yeah. Yeah, but unfortunately, typically the conflict would have to get even worse before even worse, yes. even worse before this uh, realization takes root. Naively, I would like to think that we can learn from the past mistakes of past societies and avoid that stage. But realistically, um, that may, it may be inevitable. 
I agree with you that I don't see also right now. I see mostly uh, most of the energy is um, uh, is uh, put into the internecine uh, infighting rather than trying to address the deep causes. Yeah, there are figures trying to change it. I consider myself one of them. Um, we'll, we're just going to do the best we can. And it, sound, it, it does seem like, again, I found your work um, both daunting and heartening simultaneously um because like I, I can see how what we're doing is is the right move in the right direction and you know i think the energy around us is just going to grow but unfortunately it might grow because the conflict gets worse <laughs> like that, that 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 could be the order of things do you see any um uh, people on in either republican or democratic party who are current politi politicians who might be more amenable to this type of a message yeah, very much so. I mean, we talk to them all the time, and we're actually converting people um, who are office holders at various levels, uh, state levels, a mayor, or two mayors. Um, so uh, we're, we're, and if you talk to them privately, by the way, a lot of them actually are, are interested and aligned. It's hmm. just they don't feel like it serves them politically to step forward just yet. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But, but the average American is very, very into what we're doing if they think it can work. Um, and it, it sounds like, again, I mean, the history is on our side, for better or for worse. Yeah, yeah. According to some studies, the degree of polarization within the non-elite population is actually not as huge as uh, many people assume. So fascinating, Peter. We'll have to have you back um, to, to talk about uh, how to knit us back together. Uh, Peter Turchin, the author of End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. You've influenced my work uh, profoundly. Uh, anyone who's read my books uh, know, knows that um, I, I've cited you uh, often, and I, I hope that people pay attention to both your work and your recommendations. Thank you, Andrew, for having me on your podcast. Mm -hmm.